Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Calling Tau City, turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message. It was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear. Please take it slow. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network. Featuring tales to terrify and far-fetched fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm moving, waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 482. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. We have a story today, man. <gasps> Dyad by David Burns, orig- originally published in the Cyborg Chronicles. That's all coming in today's show. Before that, though, just to, if anybody out there have, I've been and put myself on, and I wouldn't call it a diet, right? That's what I'm not going for. No, Chung is not saying that at the moment. But I went on and it seems to be doing remarkably well for us. A high fat, low carb diet for one for a better way. Anybody run with that gauntlet? I mean, it's a strange beast, you know, is trying to get into this key, is a ketone area of, you know, metabolism for the body. Well, it seems to be all right. I, I'm never... Hungry, so if anyone's, you know, drop us a note, drop us a note, get off that as quick as you can. <laughs> so, main fiction, like I say, it is Dyad by David Burns, originally published in the Cyborg Chronicles. David Burns is a former officer on a nuclear-powered submarine turned corporate executive turned science fiction writer. He is the creator of the sci-fi series... The Dream Gale Chronicles, as well as numerous pieces of short fiction. In his spare time, he co-writes contemporary thrillers with a retired naval intelligence officer. You can find out more at davidburns.com. This story is narrated by Andrew Lehman. Andrew Lehman is a producer, a designer, an actor, writer and director. Not necessarily in that order. He has appeared on professional stages in the Chicago and Los Angeles area and is a member of the Theatre Banshee in Burbank, California. He has designed graphics and props for numerous films and TV shows, and a number of digital fonts have been used extensively by graphic designers worldwide. With his friend and collaborator of many years, Sean Branny, Andrew has been running the HP Lovecraft Historical Society since 1984, man, Andrew, oh, and has developed numerous film, audio and gaming projects, including the award-winning motion picture Call of the Cthulhu and Whispers in the Darkness, and musical projects including Ashogath, 
on the Ruth and Dreams in the Witch House, and several several 1930s-style audio dramas in the Dark Adventure Radio Theatre series. He is the author of The Lovecraftian Times, a non-scholarly history of the 1920s and 1930s for HPL fans, and is the designer of the highly authentic prop documents Call of Cthulhu Gamers. Andrew's pleased also to be a frequent contributor on the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. See, that that's where, read your notes to that's where I've heard Andrew's voice before. <laughs> if I just read the things before, Andrew, that's where you're coming from, lad. I thought I recognised his voice. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present Dyad by David Burns. They arrived in an unmarked 62 Chevy a newer model with maglev roller wheels and high-efficiency fuel cells. Pretty nice ride for cops, even for tech division. From my fourth-floor office window, I watched a stocky man emerge from the passenger side, stretch his arms over his head, and yawn widely. He had the kind of body type that off-the-rack clothing was not kind to. Long, barrel-shaped torso, ape-like arms, stumpy legs. His head was topped by a mop of unruly salt-and-pepper hair, and he sported a mustache that was visible even from this distance. His partner was a younger man, dark, intense, with vaguely Asian features. He wore a fashionable paramilitary suit favored by law enforcement types, the double-breasted kind that fastened high up on the shoulder and had false epaulets. I turned back to my desk and slipped on my heads-up display set, accessing the company's cybernetic license file with the eye scan. Probably just an unannounced inspection, but with the feds you never knew. Sally, my in-house counsel, usually handled all contact with Tech Div, but she was out today. It was Taylor Tech Company policy that no one talked to Tech Div except legal or me. I had maybe ten minutes before the receptionist would send them my way. I scanned the file. Ninety-seven open cyber tech licenses, thirty-seven approved since our last inspection, no violations, one warning for unauthorized access to cyber tech by a new employee. All in all, a pretty respectable record. I let out a sigh of relief. At least they weren't here about a violation. I knew other CEOs of cybertech firms who would kill for a tech licensing record that clean. The red light in the corner of the display flashed twice. I accessed the call, and the receptionist's face, a pretty Latina who wore her dark hair and a thick braid over her shoulder, floated over the image of the license file. She was new, so my system prompted me that her name was Lucia, and that she preferred to be called Lucy. Dr. Taylor, there are two agents from the Federal Technical Enforcement Division here to see you. Her use of the full name of FTED, or TechDiv, as they were normally called, showed how new she was to the company. Still, she was cute. From the time my father founded the company, he'd always said it was better to have beauty rather than brains at the front desk. I knew it was sexist, but that was Dad. And besides, it worked. I'm sure Lucy's pretty face managed to buy me a few extra minutes. I returned her smile. Thank you, Lucy. Please escort them to my office. I got out from behind my desk and slipped on my suit jacket. How I wished Sally were here. She'd been with the company forever and knew just how to handle these kinds of unannounced meetings. When Dad was still alive, he'd have her over to the house, and they'd reminisce about the early days of Tech when the government agency acted more like bounty hunters, not the bureaucrats they were today. I slipped the jacket back off. Better to look casual. Lucy appeared in my doorway and knocked gently on the jam. Dr. Taylor, may I present Agents Davos and Lee? Lucy was a few inches taller than the stocky official, the one in the poorly fitted suit. Up close, I could see the man had a grandfatherly face, a handlebar mustache, and 
a cybernetic eye. My confidence went up a notch. It was always better to deal with someone who benefited from cybernetic technology. The short agent strode forward with his hand outstretched. Dr. Taylor, what a pleasure. Emmanuel Davos. Friends call me Manny. His grip was dry and firm. It's a pleasure to meet you, Manny. I turned to the second agent. Dr. Michael Taylor, and you are? Agent Lee, he said in a clipped, no-nonsense tone. His dark eyes flickered over my face, stilling my smile. Pleasure, I said. He offered the barest of handshakes, as if my touch was somehow unpleasant to him. "'Wow, what an office!' Manny exclaimed, making his way to my bookshelf. He pointed at the picture of my family, me, Portia, and Emma, who was four at the time, at Disney World, all of us wearing Mickey Mouse ears and smiling like idiots. "'Dr. Taylor, your wife is a knockout. How many years have you two been together?' "'Call me Mike, please. We've been together ten years. That's Portia, my wife, and Emma.' I moved further down the bookcase and touched a picture with four photos of Emma, a sonogram, Emma as a baby with Portia, her kindergarten school picture, and a recent portrait with missing front teeth. That's my little girl, I said. She's almost seven now. Manny reached for the heavy frame. May I? Of course, I replied, handing the picture to him. <laughs> That's what they're here for. Manny's cyber eye flickered as he focused on the photographs. I tried to ignore Agent Lee lurking by the door. "'You know what I like about this?' Manny said, then continued on without stopping. "'It's real. Digital pictures just don't do it for me. I'm a traditionalist.' He leaned toward me and lowered his voice. "'He thinks I'm an old fart.' Manny jerked his head toward Lee. "'Well, that's my Portia for you,' I said with a laugh. "'She likes her traditions. You should see our house, full of antiques.' Manny was studying Emma's baby picture. "'I wasn't in the delivery room when any of my kids were born. My wife didn't want me there.' She's old-fashioned, too, I guess. He winked at me. Just as well. I'm not good with blood. Probably would have fainted anyway. I nodded. Yeah, I missed Emma's birth. I was out of the country on business, and she showed up three weeks early. Even today, with all our technology, we can't predict when a baby will show up. It's something I'll always regret. Manny put the picture back on the shelf. Don't sweat it, Doc. You guys will have another one, right? You'll get your shot. He walked over to the sitting area on the far side of my office and sat down without asking. I followed along, taking a seat opposite him. That's the shame of it, Manny. Emma is and always will be an only child. It took almost four years for Portia to get pregnant the first time, and the doctor said there's no possibility of another child. Too bad, Doc. That's just too bad. When Manny sat hunched forward in his chair, he looked a little bit like a friendly garden gnome. He poured himself a cup of coffee from the carafe Lucy had left us and offered it to Lee, who shook his head. Manny shrugged and dropped in two lumps of sugar. He sat back, stirring the coffee slowly. "'Well, you're probably wondering why we stopped by today, Doc,' Manny said. I forced a smile. "'Well, I figured we were due for an inspection.' "'You've heard about Congressman Stiles and his criminal activity,' Lee said. I made a conscious effort not to react to Lee's accusing tone. "'Cybergate?' "'Surely you don't think my company had anything to do with that,' I replied, trying to put some fire in my tone. I turned to Manny. "'We run a clean operation here, Manny. Our licensing record is nearly spotless.' Manny tugged on one handlebar of his mustache. His cybernetic eye focused on me. "'You know why they call it Cybergate? Back in the 70s—1970s, 1970s, I mean—' There was this political scandal called Watergate. It had nothing to do with gates or water. Watergate was a hotel. Huge deal. The president actually resigned over it. And ever since, scandals in the U.S. are labeled gate, even though it means nothing. I stared at Manny. 
His human eye met my gaze. His cyber eye flicked over my features. Sweat prickled the back of my neck as I wondered what sort of processing enhancements he had installed in that eye. Stay calm. You have nothing to hide. Tell us what you know about the Styles case, Lee said in that same hard tone. Just what I see on the news, I said, trying to meet Lee's flinty glare. The congressman's been accused of violating COAT by keeping a full-up model as a domestic. I believe the unit was his personal assistant. The Cybernetic Organism Anti-Trafficking Act of 2052, better known as COAT, was passed after an entire community in Pennsylvania was slaughtered at the hands of a malfunctioning cyborg, a poorly integrated Russian model with unauthorized military upgrades. It took an entire company of Marines to neutralize it. No one in the news focused on the poor quality of the integration work, or the fact that military programming in a civilian model was already illegal. No one talked about all the good work being done by cyborgs in healthcare or in menial service jobs. All they saw was a robot killing machine. Dad was still alive then, and testified before Congress as an industry expert, but it was no use. After a year of political wrangling, COAT was signed by the President. The law limited cybernetic implants in humans to 22.5% of the person's body volume, essentially one limb and one internal organ. Anyone with more than the legally allotted amount of cybertech in their bodies had two choices, get in compliance or get a kill switch installed in your hardware in case you went berserk at some point. Complete cybernetic organisms, or full-ups, were outlawed entirely. By the late 2040s, the business of producing full-ups had just started, mostly high-end units to rich people, but cutting-edge labs were doing some pretty remarkable stuff. Some even claimed by combining human consciousness and cybertech, they were making next-generation humans. COAT also resulted in the formation of Tective, whose first duty was to neutralize full-up cyborgs. The law actually used the word neutralize. The ones that didn't come in voluntarily were hunted down with extreme prejudice, and a cottage industry of Borg bounty hunters sprang up to make a killing on the government dime. A few of the more popular characters even had their own reality TV shows. Getting Borged became popular slang for getting killed. Manny had stopped stirring his coffee. Do you know anything about how the congressman might have obtained a full-up cyborg? So that's it. They thought Taylor Tech was involved in black market cyborg trafficking. Where there's a need, there would always be someone to fill it, even if it meant coloring outside the lines of legality. The black market for cyborg full-up integration was thriving, and integrators needed cybernetic parts, parts from a company like TaylorTech. I allowed a note of indignation to enter my voice. Manny, we run a clean operation. We comply with the letter and the intent of every federal law on cyborg trafficking. I don't know where the congressman got his full-up cyborg, but it wasn't from TaylorTech. Manny tapped the spoon against the rim of his coffee cup and paused to take a sip. I believe you, Doc, but you have to understand that this Borg the congressman had was no black market hack job. This was a primo model. He rested the cup on the table and pulled his jacket aside to show his service revolver, a Glock EMP that fired electromagnetic pulse rounds specially designed to paralyze the neural network of a cyborg. He stroked the butt of the pistol. I've been around a lot longer than Junior there. I lived through the bad old days when we were taking down two, sometimes three or four Borgs a day. Doc, I'm telling you that I have never seen a model this good. He lowered his voice. The congressman claims that even he didn't know. I laughed and sat back in my chair. The perfect cyborg. The model so good you couldn't tell it apart from a human. 
ones with warm skin, hair and nails that grew, and even bled if you cut them, an urban legend that would not die, along with the perpetual motion machine and Elvis sightings. Come on, Manny, I'm in the cyborg parts business, and I'm here to tell you the technology is just not there. I can always tell. I was hoping you'd say that. Manny nodded his head and turned to Lee. Didn't I say that Dr. Taylor would be able to help us? He's a professional, and you owe me fifty bucks, Agent Lee. Lee's lip curled at Manny, but he said nothing. I slid forward until my butt was balanced on the edge of the chair. Help you with what? I mean, I'm happy to help, Tective, but there's a legal liability. Doc, I have to confess something, Manny said. We didn't come here to look at your licenses. We came to talk to you about a problem at your daughter's school. What? St. Barnaby's? I stood suddenly and Lee mirrored my movements, poised to come at me. Everybody sit down. Manny, still sitting, flapped his hands until Lee and I both took our seats. No one is in immediate danger, but we have reason to believe there is another full-up cyborg unit in your daughter's school. Pretty sure it's one of the teachers. We're interviewing all the parents to identify the suspect before we make our move. What are you trying to pull here, Manny? I cursed myself for not calling Sally. I stood again. I need to call my wife. Manny raised his hands. No need. We have a team of detective agents at your home. She'll meet us at the office. But Emma, the kids are on a field trip today. We have undercover agents escorting the class. Emma is as safe as she can be. I poured myself a coffee and held the cup in my palm. The surface of the dark liquid quivered. Doc, we need your help. Manny wasn't smiling, but his face was kind in a grandfatherly way. I suddenly missed my father. He would know what to do. I need to call my legal... Manny's mustache fluttered as he blew out a breath of frustration. Look, Doc, here's the deal. I can compel you to come in for questioning if that's how you want to do it. You can call your lawyer if that's how you want to do it. Up to now, this is a request for your help to make your child safe from a stealth cyborg. The ripples on the surface of my coffee grew larger. I set the cup on the table. Okay, I'll do it. Let me get my car... You can ride with us, Doc, Manny said. We'll avoid the traffic. Parking's a bitch downtown anyway. I knew as soon as I got into the back of their vehicle that I'd made a mistake. The car door slammed shut with a solid thunk that told of extra reinforcement. I palmed my phone to call Portia. No signal. Manny rapped on the steel grating that separated the front and back seats. The back seat's a Faraday cage, he said. No signals go in, nothing gets out. Sorry about that, Doc. I slumped back in my seat and watched the scenery fly by. Agent Lee had engaged the detective transponder that gave him access to all the emergency lanes and priority traffic patterns. At least we were getting there quickly. When I was a kid, my dad used to watch reruns of an old cop show called Law and Order. I'm not sure what I expected the detective office to look like, but the outside reminded me of a police station from the 1990s. All that disappeared when we walked inside. The moment the doors hissed shut behind me, I felt a tingle of electrostatic energy and knew we had entered another EM-free zone. I didn't bother getting my phone out. I knew I'd never get a signal. Manny led the way through the gleaming white halls, Agent Lee trailing me, and I just tried to hold it together. I could hear the barest trace of Lee's even breathing behind me, but his steps were silent. He might have been ten feet back or right on my ass. I couldn't tell. I resisted the urge to turn around. Manny swerved into a large open area filled with desks and other agents. He raised his hand to a man on the far side of the room and received a nod in reply. No one else even looked up as we passed by. 
Manny stopped at a door on the far wall and held it open for me. Can you wait in here, Doc? I'll just be a minute. I could see rough horizontal stripes on the wall from the concrete forms. The ceiling was fitted with wall-to-wall light fixtures that allowed an even illumination through the whole room, but the light warmth was turned down to its coldest setting, so everything looked stark and washed out. I shivered as I sat down behind the metal table in the center of the room and stared at the empty view screen on the wall. I don't know how long it was before Manny came back, but he had Portia with him. I was barely out of my chair before she flew into my arms and pressed her face against my chest. I took a deep breath as I kissed the top of her head. Apples. My Portia always smelled faintly of apples. Manny stood on the other side of the table, rocking back and forth on his heels. Agent Lee leaned against the door jamb, watching us. I patted Portia on the back. Honey, let's just answer their questions and then go get Emma, okay? Portia nodded against my chest, and I felt her take a final deep, trembling breath before she pushed away from me. My wife was a beautiful woman, but between the tears and the smeared makeup and the harsh lighting of the room, she looked as if she had aged a decade since I'd kissed her goodbye this morning. I held her chair for her as she sat down. Manny took the seat opposite me. Agent Lee sat across from Portia. My wife's fingers crept onto my lap and seized my hand. I saw Manny's cybernetic eye focus on a tablet he was holding. The screen on the far wall lit up, showing a grid of headshots of teachers from Emma's school. Manny cleared his throat. throat) Mr. and Mrs. Taylor, thank you for coming in today. Tective really appreciates your help. Can we just cut to the chase? I asked. Seeing how upset Portia was made all my fear fade away. I needed to be strong for her. I understand, sir, Manny said in a soothing tone. Let's get to it, then. As we discussed in your office, we're investigating the Stiles case, and we may have traced a lead to your daughter's school. Portia frowned. What is the connection between Congressman Stiles' assistant and Emma's school? Her voice was soft and thick from crying. Agent Lee answered in his clipped, accusing tone. Stealth cyborgs tend to operate in pairs, called dyads, to perform software updates or minor repairs on each other. The models we're dealing with in this instance are very specialized, very sophisticated, human-like in almost every way. He glared across the table at me. I met his gaze without flinching. And you think his partner is someone at St. Barnaby's? Portia asked. A school, especially a high-end one like St. Barnaby's, is an ideal cover, said Manny. Any lab or business like your husband's is going to be licensed and monitored continuously. A school, on the other hand, has most of the same equipment as a lab, but not under the same regulatory control. We know that Stiles' assistant made regular trips to St. Barnaby's as part of his assigned duties. I pursed my lips. What Manny was saying made a lot of sense. The labs at St. Barnaby's were state-of-the-art facilities, a lot of it supplied by Taylor Tech. So how can we help Manny? I asked. He nodded, and the grandfatherly smile returned. That's the spirit, Doc. He consulted his tablet again, and the grid of pictures was reduced to four headshots, three men and one woman. We've narrowed the suspects down to these four, all in their late twenties or early thirties, all with no children. He rattled off their names and what subjects they taught, but they were just names to me. Portia handled most of the interaction with Emma's school. I don't recognize any of them, I said. Maybe if I was able to interact with them, I could detect a flaw or a tick that would give them away. I'm sure, as a cybernetic professional, I could find something. Manny looked me in the eye. Do you think so, Doc? That would really be a big help to us. I smiled. Sure. 
I'm happy to help Manny. I slid my chair back and tugged on Porsche's hand. His tablet beeped, and he dropped his gaze to the table. The corners of his mouth tightened. You know, there's just one more thing I need to tell you about, Doc. Just sit back down a minute. He folded his hands on the table and waited for us to pull our chairs back in. Manny never took his eyes off me. I guess I should be embarrassed about this, but I haven't been completely honest with you, Doc. I sat very still. I tried to swallow, but my mouth had gone dry. Oh, I managed to choke out. Agent Lee leaned toward me and Porsche's fingers went rigid in my hand. We pulled your daughter's DNA profile from the FBI database and we compared it to a sample from you that Agent Lee took from the back of our car. They don't match, Doc. How do you explain that? I let go of Porsche's hand and sat up in my chair. How dare you? I demand... Let's just skip the indignation, Doc, and focus on the facts here. I did some digging in your background and found out you spent two years overseas. I ran our operation in China, that's public knowledge. You were in the hospital when you were there, right? I had been sick with a rare strain of the bird flu and nearly died. I'd been so ill that I barely remembered any of it. That's right, I was in the hospital for almost a month. I nearly died. What I didn't say was that the illness was also the reason why it had been so hard for Portia to get pregnant. Nearly died, Doc? What are you saying? I could see Manny's cyber eye working as he focused on my features. He probably had upgrades that allowed him to monitor all my vitals with a single glance. A trickle of cold sweat ran down my back, and I felt Portia shift her body ever so slightly away from me. Manny's gaze never wavered. I'm saying that maybe you're a cyborg, Doc. I'm saying maybe you died in China and they transferred your consciousness into a machine. At least, that's my theory. The bare gray concrete walls seemed a lot closer, and I was having a hard time catching my breath. This wasn't happening. I'd heard the internet conspiracy stories about people being taken by Tective because they were suspected of being some kind of advanced cyborg, but they were just urban legends. That's one theory, Manny said. Here's another. Manny tapped the tablet again and the view screen showed Emma's school picture. She had a wide smile and her two front teeth were missing. It was my favorite picture of her. Meet Kimberly Sanchez. Abducted from a hospital in Chicago on March 14th, 2057, the same day she was born. That's Emma's birthday, I said. Manny nodded. Portia's face went very still. I laughed. Are you seriously suggesting that Emma is not our baby? Look, I was there for the pregnancy. My wife got as big as a house. There were doctor's appointments and sonograms. Did you ever meet your wife's doctor? Well, no, but she... You told me you weren't there for the birth, and now it sounds like you never went to a sonogram. Portia's hand reached for mine. There was a strength to her grip that made me stop speaking. She had a faint smile on her face as she leaned across the space between us. She planted a kiss on my temple. Then her lips slid down until they were next to my ear. I'm sorry, she breathed. When Portia moved, it was like a blur. She vaulted across the table, both feet landing on Agent Lee's chest, smashing him back against the wall. Her momentum carried her across the room, and she wrenched open the door. The shot from Manny's gun caught her between the shoulder blades, just above where the neck of her dress scooped down. The same place that I liked to kiss her when I got out of bed in the morning and she was still sleeping. 
A crackle of blue light surrounded her entire body as the EMP charge deployed. Portia collapsed to the ground as if her bones had turned to jelly. The report from the pistol robbed me of my hearing, leaving only a high-pitched whine. Manny's grandfatherly face had gone hard, with deep creases around his eyes and lips. He smiled to himself as he slid the Glock back into its holster. I saw him mouth the word. Gotcha. The afternoon sun felt warm on the back of my neck when I left the detective office. On the sidewalk, I peered into the faces of people passing by, wondering if any of them were full-up cyborgs. How could I not have known? I blinked back the tears that started to cloud my vision. After they took Portia's body away, the kindly-faced Manny returned. He asked me a lot of questions that I answered as best I could. I kept staring at the spot by the door where Portia had fallen, her body encased in crackling blue light, so still she looked as if she was asleep. Manny seemed genuinely sympathetic as he explained how they had narrowed the dyad suspects down to Portia and me. "'How did you know it wasn't me?' I asked. Manny tapped his temple next to his cybernetic eye. "'This little baby has turned me into a walking polygraph. I can measure heart rate, respiration, pupil dilation, all in real time. She was good, I'll give her that, but a real Borg hunter knows his prey.' He shot a look at the doorway where he'd gunned down my wife." Her responses were completely human, but our bit of detective work on your daughter's DNA, eh, that was something she couldn't fake. So that's real? Emma's not my daughter? Manny held up his hands. We've been in touch with child services, and for the time being, Emma will stay with you until we can work out the details with Chicago. It's in our best interest to keep the situation as quiet as possible. Manny cleared his throat. <clears throat> Look, Doc... I'll get a car to take you home. I gathered my strength and stood, my legs quivering beneath me. No, I'll have my limo pick me up. I blinked back the tears again, and then the limo was there in front of me, idling by the curb. Our driver, George, stepped out and held the door for me. Are we waiting for Mrs. Taylor, sir? No, thank you, George. I slid into the back seat, the black leather cool and comforting. The car door closed gently behind me, shutting out the city noise. Home, sir? George's eyes were blue in the rearview mirror. Yes, no, to Emma's school. Very good, sir. I lacked the energy to walk into the school, so I sat in the back seat with the window rolled down, waiting for Emma outside the stone gates of St. Barnaby's. She had her hair in pigtails today, and they bounced off her shoulders as she laughed. When Emma saw the limo, she broke off from her friends and ran toward the car. She stopped when she saw my face in the window. "'Where's Mommy?' I popped open the door. "'Come on in, Peanut.' Emma dumped her book bag on the floor as I closed the door behind her. The car pulled away from the curb. I must have looked horrible, because she reached out and touched my face. "'What's wrong, Daddy? It's Mommy, isn't it? She said something might happen. It's... what?' What did your mother say, exactly? She said that if anything happened to her, I was supposed to give you a picture to make you feel better. I relaxed. Emma drew constantly, and that's exactly the kind of thing Portia would have said to her. There was no need to go into Portia's death right this instant. I needed to think this thing through before I tried to explain it to a six-year-old. Would you draw me a picture, sweetie? I would like that very much. Emma pulled her sketch pad and a box of colored pencils from her backpack and set to work. 
The scratching of pencil on paper had a hypnotic quality to it. I closed my eyes and rested my aching head back against the cushions. I must have fallen asleep, because the next thing I knew, the car was outside our front door and George was holding the car door open for me. Emma was still hard at work on her picture. I put my hand on her shoulder. You can finish that inside, Peanut. You can't see it until it's all done, Daddy. She slapped the cover of her sketch pad shut. I covered my eyes and tried to laugh, glad to be focusing on anything besides telling my little girl her mother was never coming home. The cook had left a plate of cookies on the counter for Emma's afternoon snack, but the girl ignored them. She plunked her backpack on a chair and resumed her drawing. I watched the way her forehead crinkled up in concentration and the ends of her pigtails flicked against the paper. The cookie I had thrust into my mouth tasted like ashes. I'll let her finish her picture, then I'll tell her. When the image of my little girl went glassy with tears, I went into the living room, sank into the soft cushions of my easy chair, and closed my eyes. Breathe in. Breathe out. You can do this. Emma needs you. Daddy, it's done. I opened my eyes. Emma's pictures were normally princesses or animals, with lots of pinks and purples. This one was geometric, with sharp lines and exact colors. In the center ran a vertical column of what looked like Chinese characters. I frowned. Was she learning Chinese now? Christ, I don't even know what she's taking in school. How will I ever do this alone? That's good, Peanut. I don't think I have one like this. I swallowed hard, pushing her pigtails back over her shoulders, grateful for anything to preserve this moment of innocence before I crushed her little world. I need to tell you something, sweetie. It's about Mommy. Do you like it? she asked, ignoring me. She plunked her finger down on the string of vertical characters. It's a magic picture. Look right here. She stood on her tiptoes and gripped my shoulder with both hands as she leaned in, her whisper a ticklish warmth against my ear. A four-syllable word. Something in a foreign language. The picture shifted in my vision, the lines morphing into a three-dimensional pattern. A low hum started at the base of my neck, and a tingling sensation spread across my forehead. My breath hitched in my throat. Daddy? A line of text ran across the lower limit of my vision. Activation sequence complete. Downloading extraction plan. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is David. David, what can I say, man? Ho ho! Thank you so much. Lovely to have you on the show. And Andrew, yes, please, more, more, more. What a great voice! Just character-driven there. Thank you so much. You just got it and grasped it. Thank you so much. So that is Starship Sofas, show 482, ever on the kind of creep crawl towards 500 and our celebrations there. Possibly a balloon pop, you know how I'm saying possibly now, you know, <laughs> just, oh, bloody hell, what have I done? Anyway, until next week, just like to say, good day from me. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. I don't get how much I 